Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. A quick announcement that my short story collection, Home is a Made-Up Place, is coming out on February 28th, 2023, but is in pre-order now. If you'd like to learn more about Home is a Made-Up Place, you can visit my website, roneatplank.com, to read a blurb and some advanced praise and find links there in case you would like to pre-order it. It's available at all of the major bookstores as well as your own independent bookstores and online as well. Today, my guest is Suzanne Roberts. She is the author of the award-winning essay collection, Animal Bodies, on death, desire, and other difficulties, the award-winning travel memoir and essays, Bad Tourist, Misadventures in Love and Travel, and the memoir, Almost Somewhere, 28 Days on the John Muir Trail, winner of the National Outdoor Book Award, as well as four books of poems. Named the next great travel writer by National Geographic's Traveler, Suzanne's work has been listed as notable in Best American Essays and included in the Best Women's Travel Writing. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, CNN, Creative Nonfiction, Brevity, The Rumpus, Hippocampus, The Normal School, River Teeth, and elsewhere. She holds a doctorate in Literature and the Environment from the University of Nevada, Reno, teaches in the low-residency MFA program in creative writing at UNR Tahoe, and splits her time between South Lake Tahoe, California, and an old green van named Shrek. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you. It's so great to be here with you. I'm so glad you're here and really, really excited to talk about your book, which, I mean, I know that the the subtitle is On Death, Desire, and Other Difficulties, and it's, it's so rich, and I'm hoping you can kind of try to explain a little bit about animal bodies for people who haven't yet read it. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, So animal bodies is about our desires and our hungers and our drives, uh, the things that connect us to our animal natures. And those things are so often taboo. And so I end up writing about dying and death and grief, desire and sex, illness, pain. Um, And then other topics that come up are are things that in this political landscape are are political, even though I never considered myself a political writer before. But writing this book, I really realized that the things I write about are now politicized. So when I write about my body, there's a couple of essays about abortion, for example. When I write about the environment and climate change and the landscape where I live, that's also a political topic. And so the topics that I write about are deeply personal, but they are also very public in in, the, mm. in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I love a collection like this where, I, first of all, I love the collection, but I also really appreciate a collection where there are so many different lengths and different approaches to material. I feel like to be able to see, oh, this is just going to be a very long paragraph in this section, that's all that is, then I can kind of immerse myself in it knowing it's it's going to be take all of me to just concentrate because everything I need to know about this particular piece is right here in front of me. There's no turning the page. This is it. And it's just such a different way to read. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I read out of this book, um, I read out of this book in poetry festivals. 
So the book is um, mostly lyrical essays. There are some more narrative pieces, and then there are some things that I would consider prose poems. So there's a real sort of mix in length and style. And I think for me, there's a lot of really difficult topics. Mm -hmm. And approaching a difficult topic is always easier when I think about language and lyricism and sound. And mm -hmm. so I think some of the most difficult essays are those more lyrical pieces. Interesting. And is that a conscious decision going in or do you just follow where you are going as you sit down to do it? You know, I think it's a con it's both. It's a conscious decision in that if I have something really difficult to work with, sometimes I'll say, okay, um, I'm going to use a framework. Um, for example, you know, there's an essay in here about um, breaking up with a long-term friend, um, the dissolution yeah. of a friendship over actually political ideology. And that essay was really difficult to write. And the the opening sequence is, happens during an avalanche. And so I, I decided to use the avalanche danger scale, the highest avalanche danger, right? Well, I start at the lowest and then go all the way through, you know, moderate, considerable, high, extreme. And I knew that I had those sections to work with. And I just thought about what needed to be in each section. And so for me, having a framework makes it easier to access difficult material. You know, I tell my students, sometimes you need a lot of time to access difficult material. And I, I think that's true. But I also think sometimes you can make that time shorter by using form. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was wondering about your putting the pieces together in the collection. I'm always intrigued by how writers select what goes and what doesn't go into a particular collection. And, and, and I wanted to know a couple of things, which is, were most of these pieces written already? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because I feel like I have to talk about the whole evolution of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because this book, looks very different than it looked at the beginning. Um, I thought I was writing a book about grief. Um, I've had a lot of loss in the last five to seven years. And my writerly obsessions turned to writing about loss and grief. And so I thought I had a book that was completely about grief. And it was initially called The Grief Scale. Mm. And I had it arranged in the Kubler-Ross you know, stages of grief, which was arranged that way, ironically, because nobody goes right yeah. through, right, you know, from denial <laughs> to acceptance. I've heard that. I've heard that so much that in, in, as an adult now, as a later adult, I've heard this several times that there is no scale that goes that orderly. No, and you might hit all of them and other things, too, that are not on the scale. Yeah. And uh, But it's never in order, and you you never really get through it, you know? And so anyway, I had it in that way, and so I had each section, there were five sections, I thought, oh, this is so clever of me, right? And then I read uh, The Rules of Inheritance. And it's a memoir in the stages of grief. And I was listening to it. And uh, I, I didn't even realize until like the third chapter that it was in those stages. And I thought, okay, well, somebody's already done it, right? Claire Bidwell-Smith. And she did it better than I've done it. Uh, which is why I should I always tell my students you should read widely and deeply because you know your great idea might have already been used mm -hmm. and I realized I didn't I, I didn't want to use that format that you know that she had used I also realized at the same time that the book wasn't just about grief it was about 
other things. It was about the difficulty of being in a human body, specifically being in a female human body. And so I wrote to some friends. I have two trusted friends uh, that I'm on this text stream with, uh, two other writers. And I, and I said, hey, I don't know what I'm going to call this book. And one of the writers said, well, what's it about? And I said, well, it's about, you know, what it means to live in these animal bodies. And she said, there's your title. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. And I thought, that's a terrible title. Because I was afraid people would, you know, pick it up and think it was about giraffes or something. <laughs> and, yeah. And, but, 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 you know, I realized it was the title. And I knew mm-hmm. it was about death. So that was the first section. But I also knew it was about the connection between death and desire, which I'm really interested in. And then I liked the three Ds. So I put everything else right at the end that were the <laughs> other kinds of difficulties, aging and climate change and, and some pretty big topics, actually. And so that's how the book came up, came, you know, came to be. And so, yeah, some of the pieces were written um, as long as 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think one of the oldest pieces in here is Friending the Dead. And that was written, I think, in like 2011 or something. And then the newest piece was actually written as we were going to press. And I was oh, wow. evacuated from a wildfire. Right. Yeah. And so I knew I wanted to to end the book with the wildfire evacuation. And that piece feels unfinished because it is unfinished because I didn't know if my house would still be standing when the book came out. Mm-hmm. And that's how close the fire, I can see, you know, where mm. the flames burned from my office window. And um, and I liked that. I liked that the book didn't yeah. have a sort of neat, tidy ending because it's not a neat, tidy book. Mm. Yeah, I just, I love learning all that. And I I, I also, I'm, I have two follow-up questions about this and the, they are unrelated to each other, but they came up for me while you were talking, which is what it's like to work with the university press. Because I think in conversations with writers, it doesn't always come up. But when I was at AWP where I met you um, in Philly, I went to a panel about university presses and wow, those publishers and communities seemed supportive and welcoming and it opened my eyes to how great it could be to work with the press at a university. Yeah, you know, I started working with University of Nebraska um, in two, well, before 2012, but my first book with them came out in 2012, almost somewhere, 28 Days on the John Muir Trail. And it's a memoir about uh, through hiking, but it's also about female friendships and identity and sort of discovering a uniquely feminine vision of the wilderness. So it's about the same kinds of things I'm writing about now, just approaching in a, in a different way. And the editor was the uh, sports editor. So I started working with him and he, you know, he was great. The press was great. That book did really well. It won, um, you know, the National Outdoor Book Award. And they're actually doing a 10-year anniversary edition this year. Yeah, it'll be out in October. And so they were great to work with. And so then when I wrote my second memoir, which is also a, a memoir on travel essays, Bad Tourist, I brought it to my editor and he said yes. And even though he was a sports editor and it mm-hmm. wasn't really a sporty book as much as the first one was. And and then we sort of continued our relationship with Animal Bodies. And so I've been with the press for over 10 years and wow. they've been great. They're really supportive and they keep their books in print, you know, mm-hmm. even if they don't sell a million copies, which they don't, but they're really supportive and wonderful and they make beautiful books. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And especially I love the cover of Animal Bodies. I do too. Yeah. yeah. So before I go on to the next question, which is about memory and memoir, I wanted to ask you about this idea of the language on the uh, the language in your book and the writing on the sentence and word level because you are – were you a poet first? Well – I don't know what I was first, but <laughs> but I, I, you know, actually, maybe I do. I, I've always been a storyteller. Um, ever since I was a little girl, I liked writing stories, and it didn't matter what form they were. It didn't matter if they were based on my life. It doesn't matter whether they were based on my imagination. Mm-hmm. I've always been interested in storytelling, and if you're interested in tor- storytelling, you're usually interested in sentences and words and wordplay. And so my master's degree was in fiction writing. Mm-hmm. And I then went on and, you know, did a PhD in literature and the environment and taught for many years and wrote, you know, two, two collections of essays and a memoir. But my first four published books were books of poems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's so important for memoirists to study poetry, to study economy of language, just to study the way things sound. You know, I tell my students, you don't don't turn anything in for publication, whether it's a poem or a whole book, unless you have read that thing out loud. Mm-hmm. So you can see how it sounds. Mm-hmm. I have found so many errors in my work that way. And I have realized, you know, even on a, on a basic level, redundancies or words that just don't hang well. And I think reading aloud is also a great way to figure out, of course, uh, rhythm and what things sound like and whether or not it's coming across the way you think it is in your head. And I, I've just recently come to understand how significant poetry can be and how much it can help me with lyrical work as well. Yeah, I also think it's great if you're stuck. You know, if you feel like you can't write or you're not motivated to write or you don't want to write, just read a couple of poems. Mm-hmm. And that language and the sound and the movement will get you excited for your own words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I want to talk about, I mentioned that um, there's this idea of memory and rendering our memories and memoir that comes up a bit for memoirists and the idea of what we have the authority to to depict. And if we don't remember it clearly, how can we write about it? And I think there's like memoirists who've been through this sort of understand already. They don't have to get hung up on the exact specifics of what happened. And in Becoming Bird, you write in My memory, the man on the bagpipes plays, here comes the sun, but I don't know if that's right. That's how memory works. Eventually it becomes real, whether it happens or not. And so I'm wondering what your approach to memory was when you first began writing memoir and how you depict and render memories now has changed at all, if it has, has evolved. For, you know, when I first started writing, I felt like, if I can't remember this totally clearly, how can I write this scene? But now I understand more having talked to other memoirists and having written my own memoir. I kind of understand what the role of memory is and what sticks out to us and what keeps gnawing at us is sort of what is is what we're writing about. And so I was just wondering if you could kind of talk about if you've changed over time in your approach to memory and and what you feel about that now as a memoirist. Yeah. You know, I'm so interested in memory. And of course, you know, a memoir is memory, right? That's that's where we get the word memoir mm-hmm. from. It It's an exploration of the way we remember things. And I have a really good memory. And maybe that's why I'm drawn to memoir. But I never trust it, you know? So 
I find that when I write, I have to check multiple sources. So when I wrote, for example, the essay Breaking the Codes um, in Animal Bodies, which is about my friend being raped, I I remember that, right? But it was such a traumatic memory that I mm. wasn't sure. I didn't trust it. Did it really happen? Like, did it really happen? You know? And so I went back and I found letters from junior high and read them all. And then I wrote to friends from, you know, junior high. I wrote to, you know, other people. And so I always sort of double check my memory, even though I don't think it's that important. It's not important to do. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I would tell students, like, don't worry about it. You know, keep it faithful to your memory. That's enough. But for myself, I'm always feeling like I need to make sure that I that I really do remember this right, that I'm not making this up. And so I always, you know, fact check myself. And I'm pretty lucky because I'm kind of a hoarder of things. <laughs> you know, I've got letters, I've got photographs, I've got, you know, I I, I really have a huge collection. I've got a thousand journals. Mm-hmm. I've got so many things that I can look back on and, and check my memory. But mm-hmm. I think that I'm evolving to let go of that a little bit. So I I I think the memoirs I love the most maybe aren't even sold as memoirs, even though they are, right? Like take mm-hmm. Sylvia Plath, The Bell Jar, right? Based on her life, but she called it a novel because of course back then that's what she called it. Um, and, you know, Pam Houston talks about how everything she writes is 82% true. And so I, I think I'm okay, more okay now with telling, you know, telling a good story saying this is how I remember it and sticking by it and being confident in those memories rather than feeling like I have to fact check to myself all the time. And maybe the fact that I'm now writing a novel, you know, tells you that I'm, I'm really moving toward, mm-hmm. it, it's a novel based on my family though. So is it a speculative memoir? <laughs> is it auto fiction? I don't know. I don't know what you call it, but it's really fun and mm-hmm. it feels a lot looser and freer. And I think now at this point in my life, the most important thing to me is telling a good story. Mm-hmm. And and to that end, I was wondering if you could read from the the part of your book, the section called Sport Fucking. <laughs> and um, I'm hoping you can set us up a little bit and then go ahead and read it. Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to. So this essay is, as you as you mentioned, and then laughed because it, it does have a sort of a silly <laughs> title, um, Sport Fucking. And it takes place um, on a weekend-long affair with a well-known poet that I have named Werther. That's not his real name. Those of you who like Goethe, right, will know who, mm-hmm. where I stole that. Um, and also, you should know that it takes place during a time when I've moved back in with my ex-husband, which is a bad idea. So if anybody's <laughs> thinking about doing that, I can just tell you, don't don't do it. If it didn't work out the first time, it probably isn't going to work out the second time. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, too, because I was like, oh, you know, like yeah, I think like, any reader would be like, don't do it. I know. I know. It's like watching a horror movie. Don't go in that door. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I will read about a page and a half. And this is uh, right after I come back from the weekend with him. When I came back from my trip, my sister Cindy says, it's as if you were in a car and you have pulled your hands off the wheel ready to crash. Everything at that time in my life was like that. Going to visit Werther was like pressing on the accelerator, closing my eyes, waiting to crash. 
Somehow I had managed a series of near misses. I didn't and still don't care that I was one of many of Werther's women. He wasn't my only affair either. I suppose I went to see Werther because I wanted to have a life that was exciting and free and maybe even reckless. It meant people would like my stories, though when we don't get beyond reckless, there is no point to the story. I wanted to be more than myself, though now I see how contradictory it all was. What I wanted was to be someone who could take charge of her life, though really, I was doing the opposite. Did I really believe that I'd look in the mirror and think, why? Who is that woman who can jet off to the South for a clandestine affair in a 1970s rancher with a man who weighs less than she does? Mm -hmm. That's what I ended up doing. But I suppose what I really wanted was to believe I wasn't the sort of woman who talks too much about silly things when she's nervous. I wanted to be the woman who could go off and fuck someone who cared nothing about her and feel just fine. The truth is, there is no woman like that, and if there was, I'm not sure I would admire her. I'm not trying to be moralistic here. I'm not saying sex without love is an awful thing, because I don't believe that either. I don't regret my sport-fucking weekend, antibiotics took care of the infection, and my live-in ex-husband and I were on our way out anyway. My friend Kim told me that if it isn't true, it's just noise. And here's the truth. I didn't want to have a relationship with Werther. In fact, I wanted to be free to do whatever I wanted. But still, I wanted Werther to like me. But he didn't like me, or my sexy middle-aged friend, or maybe not even his colleague at the university. What I can see now after all these years is that I didn't like him either. I needed an escape from my humiliating living situation. I used Werther and that didn't make me like myself very much either. Life is full of all sorts of surprises though. And a few years later, Werther and I ended up in the same plane and then the same taxi on the way to a real writing conference. Why don't we all share a cab, my friend Eve suggested. Squeezed in next to him in the back seat of the taxi, the only word that came to my mind was, impossible. The body remembers things based on feel, based on the temperature of the landscape. I was jogging one morning in Florida, and if you've been to Florida in July, you know the prickly stars of a wet heat on your cheeks, the stinging fire in your lungs, the body's machine working against the heat. I ran, and I remembered that walk through a late afternoon glare, how I had talked about my psychic, and how that must have sounded, how I let my sweaty hand dangle next to his, hoping. It all comes back, whether I like it or not. The near accident on the highway, the football announcer's tinny voice coming from the cracking loudspeakers at the nearby stadium, the dead lawn, the afternoon heat seeping through the blinds the weight of my suitcase. Thank you. You know, something that came up for me when I was reading this was that idea that we make these choices throughout our lives that seem like the best decisions for us because we only have so much information about ourselves and about what we want and the people around us. And then 
I'm getting to a point in my life where I look back and have so much clarity about what I was doing and what would have been a better choice. And so I'm wondering uh, for you, it seems like back then in the in the anecdote you tell, you felt or believed you understood what you were doing and that you chose it. And then later you discover you weren't actually seeing yourself that clearly, that you weren't in control of the situation the way you thought you were then. And I'm wondering if now the Suzanne Roberts now that you are feels like you're the real you or that you really understand who you are now? You know, I thought I was the real me then. And I I think the real me and the real you is always momentary. You know, Mm -hmm. am I going to learn something in a year or 10 years that makes me realize something I'm doing right now is so short-sighted or wrong or confused. Yeah. I mean, I think we, Mm -hmm. we constantly evolve, you know, I, I think I was the real me when I was two and 12 and 22 and now at 52, you know, I mean, I think I have more insight and I've done more work. Um, and I like myself better, you know, there, there are definitely a lot of benefits to aging, especially being a woman and, and always sort of looking at yourself from the sort of out, side view or the male gaze or whatever Mm -hmm. it is like we do in our 20s and 30s. And certainly I had a lot more energy to fuck up then, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, cheating on a husband or jumping into the bed of a stranger. I just don't really have energy for that kind of thing anymore. (laughs) I mean, I don't. I mean, it's just, it's a lot of energy to create chaos in your life. You know, you need a lot of energy for that. And I don't have that. I, my energy is going into writing and into skiing and into my friends and my husband. So I don't, I don't have the kind of energy to be the kind of fuck up I used to be. <laughs> but I probably am fucking up now and I will next year and in 10 years. And I just think that's part of being human. And I think that the best we can do is sort of accept that that's going to happen and know and know that sometimes we don't know why we do what we do. And that's yeah. what in some ways, that's what all of my books are about, trying to figure out why have I done what I've done? Because I don't understand it. Yeah. And I, as you're talking, I realized too that, I mean, I think I always wanted to know that I would eventually arrive in a place and be the person I was supposed to be. And then I realized how fruitless that is because I'm a work in progress, like all of us. And this is part of why people are so fascinating and why writing is endlessly interesting to me too. You know, this is the stuff, right, that becomes fodder, I think. So in then the section called Traveling Alone, um, you reflect on the anonymity of travel. And I know you're such a big travel writer and we're not touching on too much of it right now, but you write, wasn't part of the allure of travel to leave your old self behind and embrace a more adventurous, interesting, reckless self. And I see this and I understand this impulse, but there's also a feeling that I've I've really come to understand, which is wherever you go, there you are, you know, that we can't change lots about ourselves by just swapping locations. Like I think I always envisioned that, you know, I would become someone different if I moved or if I tried something new, but I've come to understand that I'm always who I am, but I'm just changing, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm curious about your thoughts now as, as you get to this age that I am as well, what your thoughts are on finding ourselves through travel. Well, interestingly, because in that um, sentence that you pulled out, it's in an essay about not doing it, right? About not being the reckless, new, exciting, fun self, right? Because she fantasizes, my narrator, right, about having a menage a trois with two very young men, but she doesn't do it, right? So mm-hmm. so that sentence is, a, is meant to be a little bit ironic, right? This sort of idea mm-hmm. that, you know, 
oh, couldn't I just be someone new? And the answer was really no. But I can, you know, live in my fantasy land or my fantasy life. And um, and that's exactly what I did, right, in that, you know, in that time period in Quito, Ecuador. But as far as travel, you know, I think I, I think about this a lot because I, I do work as a travel writer and I've written a lot of place-based narrative. And I think we are who we are, but I also feel like I am my best self when I travel. Um, of course, it's complicated, right? Like, you know, I, I care about the environment and I know that there's like jet fuel to get places and I care about places I go and I know that my impact on those places could be negative. And, and so it's really complicated. But I also, when I'm in a new place and I'm foreign, I'm also a little bit foreign to myself. So I see myself from an outside perspective, and I think that that allows me to see things that I maybe don't see every day when I'm distracted by my everyday life. Mm-hmm. I also come to a new place with an openness and a generosity and a curiosity that I forget about sometimes at home, and I think that makes me a, maybe a, not a different person, but a better version of the person I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In that same essay, that section, you also write about, I'm going to just quote it here. Obviously, so much of your work spoke to me, and, and this is something because as an animal lover like you, I felt this keenly. Quote, women sorted through beans and rabbits, socks and eyeshadow. A man whipped yelping dog- hogs with a stick to load them into a pickup truck. A lamb tied to the top of a bus bleated in terror. So... For me, it's hard to read about animals in in pain or being used by humans, you know, though I do read so many fraught stories in general for my work and and for this show. Like, I can take a lot, right? But for whatever reason, with animals, it's just really hard for me to read about. And so I was curious about how you chose to approach this material. And that's really just a section. There's so much more in there. You vividly portray um, in what I feel are economic strokes what the animals you encounter might be living through. And and going into these sections to try to write about what you saw, you know, how, did you have a sense of how you wanted to portray the terror or entrapment you witnessed? How did you decide to calibrate your experience for the reader in this way? Because I find it to be enough to make me see and feel and worry, but not so much that I, I have to look away. Well, thank you for that. You know, I think what I want to do when I write about the treatment of animals is to talk about how it's connected to all of our systems. It's connected to social justice. It's connected to environmentalism. It's connected to all of it, right? And so I think there are so many people who think about like, okay, you know, we have to save the animals, which yes, we do. We are in a period of mass extinction like we've never been in. But at the same time, it's like human beings need to survive. And so sometimes animals suffer because those human beings are in dire economic you know, situations. Mm-hmm. So instead of taking care of a rainforest, the rainforest might be chopped down you know, and slashed and burned and made into a, a field of plantains or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I want to problematize you know, this situation in the way that it is a problem, in the way that it is complicated. And you know, I think it's really interesting. This comes up a, lo- a lot. So I give you know a lot of readings and talk to people about the book, and everyone always says, "Oh, I I cried, I mm-hmm. cried in that essay about when you had to put your dog down, and I couldn't read the essay about the dogs in 
cages, you know, the meat market mm-hmm, at mm-hmm, Vietnam. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and it was really hard for me to hear about, you know, what the section you just read, right, about the market in, um, mm-hmm. in Ecuador. And I always think, you know, th- this book is so difficult. I mean, I, I try to, you know, ease that difficulty with humor and, and other um, craft aspects. But but it's so difficult, like in it, right? My my mother suffers and dies and my father dies and my best friend dies of cancer when she's 50. And my, you know, childhood friend is gang raped. And these things are horrible. They're so horrible. Yeah. They're so, they're, they're, they're these awful, they're the worst things you can think of in life. Mm-hmm. But, but people tell me that they cry when the dog's put down. And I've thought mm-hmm. about this a lot. And what I think is that, the other stuff is almost too much. It's like we can't mm, have the full emotional response to it because we would not pick ourselves up off the ground if we did. Mm. So I think we react even though I love animals. I love dogs. I, you know, I do, but I also, you know, my dog died. Yes, that was difficult, but it was way more difficult when my parents died. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think we react to the things that we have the capacity to react to, because if we reacted to the full scale of how difficult it is to be a human, sometimes it would just be too much and overwhelming. So that's kind of what I'm trying to capture. And I don't know if Mm -hmm. that answers your question. No, I love, I just love thinking about that because here I am enjoying your book. I mean, truly loving your book. And Every you you just mentioned some of the themes and some of the stories in it, and like I know that, but yes, you're right. I asked you about the animals, like so interesting, and I I and I think you're you're right. I love that you you're able to reflect on this, and you're you have so many. Um, you've gone through this with a lot of other readers and readings where people ask you about this, so you've had time to think about it. I think it's so important. You know, it's fascinating. Yes, exactly. And the toll it took on you to write, right? Like this is not even the tip of the iceberg. Um, so what have you learned about yourself as a writer? And I mean in both ways. Uh, what has writing shown you about yourself? And also, what have you come to understand about how you approach writing? Well, I think I think I, you know, I've learned that I write to connect to other people. You know, storytelling is really important to me. And um, it's also a way for me to remember and to make sense of things. Um, you know, the novelist Ian Forrester says, how do I know what I think until I see what I've said? And I think that applies for all of us. It's like, I I don't know what I think so often. And and writing, mm-hmm. it helps me, you know, helps me to um, to do that and also to connect, you know. And, and Joan Didion has said like, oh, you know, writing is a hostile act, right? Like it's saying, listen to me, right? <laughs> but I think for me, it's more like, it's saying, I exist. You know, I came from a, um, as an only child from an alcoholic family. And a lot of kids do this when they want their parents' attention. They say, look at me, look at me, right? I feel like my whole childhood, I was, it was my refrain. Look at me, look at me, look at me. And Mm -hmm. I, and I think now as a writer, I am, I'm not saying look at me, but like Joan Didion talks about, I'm saying, listen to me, right? Listen Mm -hmm. to me, listen to this. (laughs) Let me tell you a story. Here's the thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think I've learned that it's really important to me to connect. And that's one of the reasons why I write because we're all that little girl, right? I mean, that's, I think, one of the things I connected to your memoir, right, is that, you know, when you were little and you were going around trying to make friends with everyone in the kibbutz, it's like you wanted 
connection too, right? And mm-hmm. I think we all do. And and some of us grow up and and keep going with our stories. And what I've learned about myself, I guess I know that I am a binge writer. I need lots of time, like hours. Uh, I can do little things, but if I don't have a lot of time, it's super stressful. I know that I have things I need to get done before I write. Like I have to clean the house. Like my house is so clean when I'm, you know, in a project. It's like, it's like ridiculous. That's funny. Yeah. Doesn't everyone do that? You know, cleaning uh, is like sharpening pencils for me. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I, and I've learned too that I need, I need to balance because writing isn't good for our bodies. You know, sitting is terrible. Mm-hmm. Like I have to get out and ski or walk or hike or, you know, bike ride or else my back goes. So I've mm-hmm. learned that I have to take care of myself too, but I've learned that, I like to do it all at once. I like to be in the world. And so I have to, I also have to also think about how to take care of myself while I do it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we touched upon writing painful material and you talked about how you might choose uh, the poetic forms or lyric essays. But I wonder if there's anything else in terms of writing about grief and trauma that you learned. So when you're writing material that's really painful or you haven't let yourself completely explore on the page yet, do you have a process that helps you, that protects you? Do you push through? Do you pace yourself? Do you let material breathe? What What have you found to be real helpful for you? Oh, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely have a uh, technique and it's to tell myself that no one will ever see what I'm writing, ever. Mm-hmm. That no one will ever see it. You're just writing it and it doesn't even matter because nobody's ever going to read it. In fact, that essay that you had me read from, that's how mm-hmm. I wrote that essay. I mm-hmm. sat down and I said, well, nobody, this is just, I'm going to write for two hours. Nobody's ever going to read this. I just need to write this to figure out why I did what I did. And of course, sometimes I'm lying, right? Like with sport fucking, it was, you know, published in an anthology and now in this book. Um, and sometimes I'm not lying. Like I have about three or four pieces that I told myself no one will ever see and no one has ever seen it. So Mm, sometimes mm -hmm. I'm lying, sometimes I'm not, but I never know. So I just Mm. tell myself no one will ever read this, no one at all. Um, And as far as, yeah, I push through, I would say, and I definitely sometimes, you know, walk away. I don't know how to pace myself. So I either am pushing through or I'm walking away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I, I love asking that question because it does come up a lot with material that memoirists are, are dealing with. So, okay, we talked about this off air, but I, I was going to ask you what are some of the memoirs that have influenced you that you would like to recommend? And then, you know, the idea between recommending, favorite, influence. So how about I say, what memoirs would you love listeners to find that you think they should read? Oh, well, that's that's an easier question. Okay. I am drawn to memoir and essay, which, of course, Animal Bodies and Bad Tourists are both that. And so I really love Camille Dungy's um, Guidebook to Relative Strangers, which is a memoir and essays about being a black mother in America. She's also coming out with a new book that'll be out soon. I think it's even available for pre-order, which I've read. It's called Soil, A Black Mother's Garden, and it's amazing as well. It's, um, it combines you know, nature and gardening and history and politics and her life. And I think I tend to really like 
memoir that is could be on different shelves in the in, mm. in the bookstore library. Like I loved um, Carolyn Forche's "What You Have Heard Is True," which is about her time uh, right before the Civil War in El Salvador. You mm. know, so it's it's a book about how she became um, a poet, how she came to be able to see the world, not avert her eyes, write about it. But also, it's about American politics and our involvement in other countries and history and war and and all of that. I'm reading a book right now that I'm absolutely in love with. It is by um, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and it's called The Man Who Could Move Clouds. It's like, I think that's what it's called. It's sitting right mm -hmm. here. And it's magical realism and memoir. So oh, wow. that's super cool. I also love, and this is an older one, I love um, Lying, a metaphorical memoir by Lauren Slater. And, you know, that was written, I think, in the 90s if not the 90s, the early 2000s. And it really opened up what memoir can do because hmm. she's talking about mental illness, but she uses epilepsy as her metaphor. And so she's lying to us about sort of what's really wrong with her. But the reader can, you know, connect more with what we would consider like a physical rather than a mental ailment, even though obviously mental illness is a physical ailment. Yeah. I also, there's an Irish writer I always recommend, Sinead Gleason, Constellation. It, again, it's a book, a memoir in essays about illness and the body, but she writes, she doesn't feel sorry for herself one bit. And the way she writes about her ailing body is so beautiful. And then I have two books that are not out yet, but I've blurbed them and I love them. And so I want readers to know that they're available for pre-order. One is, again, a memoir and essays called Drawing Breath by Gail Brandeis. And it's beautiful, beautifully written. It's, again, about the body and the female body and um, the way Gail writes with such grace. It's, it's beautiful. And then the last one is called Burnt. It's about a life of firefighting. One of my former students wrote it. Uh, her name is Claire Frank. And it's such an amazing memoir about what it was like to be a female firefighter, you know, 30 years ago and work your way up the ranks. And it, you know, the, um, the author became the like first Cal Fire, you know, head of forestry, fire protection, the first female to do that. Mm. I think only female to do that job. And so it's about hard work and it's about, you know, um, being a woman in a, a, a very male, traditionally male world. So those are the mm -hmm. books that that are at the top of my head. But Wow, I love – thank you so yeah. much. <laughs> yes, I'm going to put them all in the show notes. And I know there's like a ton more that you would, would actually like to shout out too. So this is amazing, these resources. And I love that a lot of them are memoir and essays because that's something I'm exploring too. And it's just going to be so lovely to read those. So I do want to ask you if you have any parting, parting words, some advice for memoirists who are working on their material. So one of my favorite things to do is to give advice. So I love this question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And maybe my advice is – I think my advice about writing is good though. Um, as I had mentioned, I think reading is one of the most important things. And I think reading counts as writing time because the books, the great books, uh, you know, the the interesting books, the, the books that maybe aren't quite working, those are all the best teachers. You know, so if you can really learn to read like a writer and like figure out the structure and then read books with that in mind, then 
I think reading widely and deeply is is the most important thing you can do. I also think that you you know thinking about it as a job, right? And you have to be an employee to your art. It's work. You know, it's a lot easier than a lot of other kinds of work, but it is work and you have to think of it that way. And so maybe setting yourself up with like writing exercises. I send out actually a um, Substack newsletter every Friday, a different writing prompt. It's called 52 Writing Prompts. And I started it as a resource for writers. It's kind of a gift, you know, to the writing community. And it's a different themed prompt that only takes 20 minutes. So even if you don't mm -hmm. have time, set your timer, make yourself write for 20 minutes. Think mm -hmm. of it as your job, but also, Take joy in the writing. Take joy in the creation. Take joy in making something that didn't exist in the world because that is the only thing you have control over. You don't have control over whether it gets published, whether it wins a prize, whether readers like it. You have no control. Your only control is in the writing. And so if you don't enjoy that part, you're going to have – there's always something more to lose at, you know, in the publishing world and the, mm -hmm. you know, contest world and the, you know, mm -hmm. all of it. And, and so really – enjoy enjoy the creation part because just writing a book is a huge huge accomplishment thank you all brilliant you're a good advice giver well thank you um right right no it's great 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 um okay so where can people find you i'm super easy to find i am on you know the internet i i have a website <laughs> suzanneroberts.net as I mentioned, I have a Substack newsletter, 52 writing prompts. I'm also on Instagram as Suzanne Roberts 28 and also on Facebook. So you can find me in a lot of different ways. And also um, you can contact me through my website. There's a contact form. And so if anybody has any questions or follow up or whatever, um, I'm happily receiving emails. So generous. Thank you. I'm going to list all that in the show notes as well so people can find it that way. And thank you, Suzanne, for being my guest and for this really just great conversation. I'm, I'm so happy we were able to do this. Oh, well, thank you so much for your thoughtful and generous questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.